Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. The grace and the peace of our Lord be with all of us gathered here today. I want to encourage you to take your Bibles and join with me in a study of sacred scripture. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 16 and beginning in verse 13. And as you're finding your way to Matthew 16, 13, I want to take an opportunity right now to welcome the rest of our church family who, who is worshiping in the Family Life Center. Uh, welcome you into this study and into this time of, uh, of, of worship through the study of the Word. I encourage you to turn uh, in your Bibles and on your devices as well uh, to Matthew 16. Listen to these words as they come to us from Matthew's account of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Matthew 16, 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, but others, Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. The reading of the sacred word. Would you take a moment now uh, to enter into a time of prayer as we prepare? Most loving and gracious God, we stop for just a moment to acknowledge the mystery of this day. You didn't have to wake us up but you did. You didn't have to call us by name, but you do. And in this hour of worship, we want to be very clear about why we are here. We've come scattered from all four directions, and each of us has come to this place, Lord, with a variety of concerns and anxieties and hopes and fears, expectations, maybe even doubts. But right now, as we humble ourselves before you and we yield 
to the power of your living presence among us. We pray that you would speak to us. We pray that somehow something in us would recognize something in you that we may be transformed because of it. We recognize and we own it. We own it that we live in a world broken and that we have done the breaking. We have done the breaking. And where we were called to love, we have only despised. And where we have been called to heal and reconcile, we have only divided with our words and our actions and our silence. But in this hour, we recognize that there is something in you that if it connects with something in us, it changes everything, every last thing. So even as we study this passage and all that we will dive into, we pray that your spirit would say something. But more than that, we pray that we would hear it, that your world, may be rescued. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Lord of that world and all of life. Amen. So the week before last, I was on a phone call with a friend of mine. He's in Houston. His name is Steve Wells. And Steve Wells is the senior pastor at South Main Baptist Church in Houston. And we were talking about a variety of things, really, but one of the main things we talked about was his church and how his church has been postured to respond to the struggle in the aftermath of Hurricane Harvey. See, he is the, the epicenter. He and, and his church, they serve as the operations center for a lot of the response and relief work that began right after the hurricane ceased. And I learned that in the first few days right after the waters had subsided, one of the primary tasks of his church and his people was to listen to see who is it who has been flooded out of their, their place of residence and what can the church do to respond. So he had volunteers at the church taking those phone calls. And those volunteers would hear the members who would call and say, yeah, I'm a member of South Main. I was flooded. And they would ask questions. They would say, well, um, how big is your house and how high did the water go? That way they can determine how many people they needed to put together on a crew to go do the muck out, to go help them um, salvage whatever they could salvage and toss the rest. And, uh, South Main wasn't the only church doing that in Houston. Several churches were, including Christ Cathedral Church in Houston. Christ Church Cathedral. And they, too, had a series of, of receptionists, volunteers who came to do the intake process to receive phone calls and to organize help where they could help. And one morning, a receptionist volunteer, member of Christ Church Cathedral, received a phone call from a 67-year-old woman who was all alone. She had no family, no husband, no children nearby, and she was flooded out of her apartment. She called the church and said, I've been flooded out of my apartment and, and I know I'm supposed to somehow identify what to keep and not keep, but I don't know what's salvageable and what's not and I certainly can't lift everything to get it out of my apartment. I really don't even know where to start. And the woman on the phone, the member of Christ Church, said, no problem, don't, don't worry. 
we're going to send a crew out to your house tomorrow morning, and they're going to assess it for you. They're going to help you determine what you can keep and, and help you come up with a plan on how to get your, your stuff out of your house. She felt much better, hung up the phone. Later that afternoon, the same woman, 67-year-old member of the church, called the church again, got the same receptionist. But this time she was in a panic. She was really anxious and in a panic. She said, I have spoken to my landlord. He came by to let me know that I have to have everything out of my house, out of my apartment, by 5 o'clock tomorrow or I forfeit my security deposit. Well, the woman on the phone, the receptionist said, Okay, well, don't panic. Give me some information. I'll make a phone call and, and see what's up. She hung up the phone, and she thought what you and I might think, well, there's two sides to every story. Maybe she didn't hear something the right way. And so she, on behalf of the woman, called the landlord and said, Hi, I'm so-and-so. I'm a member of Christ Church Cathedral. I'm calling on behalf of the woman who's staying in this apartment. And she understands that by tomorrow night, everything has to be out of her apartment or she loses her security deposit. And we understand that there... There are always two sides to every story, and so I'm just calling to see, what have we missed? Is there some way we can help her understand what her real situation is? And he said, everything has to be out of the house by five tomorrow, or she forfeits everything. There was a moment of quiet on the phone. And the volunteer receptionist said, oh, I'm sorry, sir, but, but you, you've made a mistake. And he said, well, how do you figure? He said, because you assume that because she's 67 years old and all alone that she's vulnerable and you can take advantage of her. But what you don't understand is that every single member of Christ Church Cathedral is standing behind her and we got a lot of lawyers. <laughs> and our lawyers are better than your lawyers. And they are chomping at the bits to get a hold of somebody who's trying to take advantage of somebody else during this difficult time. So let me tell you how this is going to play out. Tomorrow morning, we are going to send a crew from the church to get everything out of her apartment, and it'll all be gone. We'll take it out to the street, and the claw will come and take it away, and, and there won't be anything left. But then tomorrow afternoon, you're going to come by the apartment, and you're going to put a smile on your face, and you're going to hand her a check in the full amount of her security deposit. And if you don't, you have no idea what will happen next. <laughs> so the next morning, they sent a crew. They cleared out her apartment, and in the afternoon... The landlord showed up with a smile on his face and a check for the full amount of her deposit. And I heard that story and it occurs to me as church. Church, if it is nothing else, church is intended to be a place where you can belong to somebody. And it doesn't matter who you are or what resources you have. It doesn't matter where you've been, who your mom and dad were. It doesn't matter what you've done or what you've left undone. The church, beloved, is intended to be a gathering of imperfect people with unfinished stories. And I just want you to hang on to that phrase for about a month. Because I want us to consider the reality that this is how this whole thing started. We were intended to be a gathering of imperfect people 
with unfinished stories that makes up a beloved community, a beautiful community of, of, of God's own grace and love. And, and in that beauty of belonging with one another and to one another, then over time we are gradually well, perfected by his love. And when we belong to a church, when when you really belong in the truest and most beautiful sense, there is a wholeness, there is a wholeness that is available to everyone. And the imperfections that we see every day begin over time to just kind of melt. They don't matter anymore. The unfinished business of our lives, well, that doesn't matter either because we recognize that if we belong to each other, and together we belong to God, then the unfinished part of our story is still being written every day. See, that is church. And there are some days when we live up to it. There are some days when we actually live up to that strength of our identity, who we are called to be, what we are meant to be as the beloved community of God's own power and grace and compassion. But you and I both know But there are also other days when we don't live up to who we are called to be as the body of Christ. There just are. There are days. And this pathway to belonging, you know what we do? We put up roadblocks and hurdles. We put up barriers to make people somehow try really hard to get in. And I bet every one of you in this place today, every one of you gathered in worship today, could tell me about somebody you know in your family or in your friend base who was burned by the church, turned off by the church, rejected by the church, not just not this church, but just the church, because somewhere along the way they perhaps came seeking to belong because a need, because of an isolation, a sense of desperation, they came looking to belong, but their experience was they encountered an experience in the church that didn't match the rhetoric of the pulpit that they heard in the church. And because of it, it left a scar and some of them never returned. If the church is meant to be a place where we belong, then I want to talk for a little while today about how we ensure that it remains that way. So there is a church historian, a phenomenal writer named... um, Diana Butler Bass. Diana Butler Bass wrote a book entitled Christianity After Religion. Phenomenal, provocative book, but in it she suggests that for at least 500 years, you and I have operated in kind of a system of belonging to a church without even being able to identify it or maybe even be aware that this system is in place. And she said the system can kind of be described this way. Believe, behave, belong. Believe, behave, belong. And in summary, this is what she meant, that our pathway to belonging in the church, whether right or wrong, has been something like this. If you believe the right things, if you behave the right way then you can belong with us if you believe intellectually if somehow you assent to a set of beliefs or doctrines or philosophies and 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 you check the boxes and you answer yes to the right questions if you believe 
And then if that belief leads to a behavior in which you do these things and you avoid these things, you talk to these people, but you don't talk to those people, you go to these places, but you don't go to these places, if you behave the right way, then you can belong with us. And she says, this didn't happen overnight. It happened about 500 years ago. It began with what we call the Protestant Reformation. Now, at the end of this month, we mark the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And in November, we're going to talk about it. We're going to have a series. It's going to be great. But for now, I will say this, that for about the first 1,500 years of the Christian church, at least in the West, at least in Western Europe, the Roman Catholic Church had kind of a stronghold, some would even say a stranglehold, on what it meant to belong to the church. Now, I know there are some who are here today or maybe watching who are Catholic or maybe you're married to someone who is Catholic or you have Catholic members of your family and you need to hear the context in which I'm speaking. Historically, historically, there was an era in which for 1,500 years, well, less than that, but up to the year 1,500, the Roman Catholic Church kind of had the monopoly on how to define belonging in the community of Christ. It meant that you had to do these certain things. It mean, meant that you had to believe these certain doctrines. And they were all handed down very efficiently from the Pope to cardinals to priests and so on. But somewhere around 1500, the early 16th century, there began to emerge in some, like Martin Luther, an awakening in which there was a disturbance down deep at the core of their spiritual identity, in which they, as faithful Catholics, began to feel a bit uncomfortable with this, this system, this pathway of belonging through believing the right things and doing the right things, behaving the right way. And they began to say, you know, the truth is we are saved not by what we do, and not by the works of our hands, but we are, we are saved by grace, the grace of God, and it is through faith in his son Jesus Christ. That's what saves us. And furthermore, a, a sense that we have been given a soul that has intrinsic dignity. There is a competency about my interior life. And the fact is, if I want to access God and if God wants to access me, well, we can do it right here, right now, without the need of anybody standing between me and God, without the need of any priest or pope or king. And that began to emerge in individuals, and that began to spread among groups of people. And about the same time, something phenomenal happened. Something as significant as the advent of the Internet. The Gutenberg Press was invented. We now had movable type that could make mass production of literature, books, Bibles available to the masses. And for the first time in history now, individuals, common folk, had copies of the Bible in which they read that they too had access to God to freely believe and behave and belong in the ways that they understood it and defined it. But now, as free as that sounds, as beautiful as that story is, there was a kind of flip side to it. Now that everybody's free, well, then everybody can believe whatever everybody wants to believe. And because then we have reform. We not only have Roman Catholic reform at the time, we have Lutheran reform and, and, and Calvinistic uh, reformers reform. We had Anglican reform and Anabaptist 
reform. And in every region, there were sets of beliefs that were so distinct that it really mattered what you believed. Because belief systems were not only in conflicts with each other, but actually ended up in all-out war with one another. So it was an era in which what you believed mattered and your way of belonging to a particular group meant that you had to know what you believed and why you believed it. And you still do need to believe and know why you believe what you believe. But as a pathway to belonging, there was an era in which what you believed mattered more than anything else. And there's still vestiges of that today in today's church because when you change a church or you go shopping for a church, which I know none of you will or do, maybe, until after this sermon, maybe. <laughs> but when you do, we kind of ask ourselves, well, what does this church believe? Where do they stand on this? And, what? and so you begin to still look for what do you believe? Even in the way that we create a pathway for belonging with our children, whether you're from a mainline denomination or even a Baptist denomination, mainliners baptize their children, and the, at the baptism, the parents stand and say what they believe on behalf of their daughter until she can own it themselves. And then they enter into a time of confirmation or a time of education so they can intellectually assent to a variety of beliefs that upon confirmation means she can now own her faith and have her first baptism or her first communion. In the Baptist tradition, it's similar. We have a baby dedication in which the, the parents stand here and they say what they believe and then we put them in Sunday school. And then after Sunday school, through these years, we teach them what it means to believe in Christ. And when they confess it with, them, with their own mouths, then we enter into the waters of baptism. And we say they are now members of the church. They belong. And all of that is extraordinarily important. But it all begins with belonging, not believing. Right? In fact, belonging and believing, it's important to get the sequence right because Believing is kind of a strange way to join any organization. I mean, if you were to, to join a knitters group, if you wanted to join a knitting group, you don't, you don't go to the first need, knitting meeting and say to the, the president of the knitting guild, can I see a copy of your bylaws, please? You don't say to them, I would like to know your top 10 philosophies on, on, on hooks and needles. And... No, you show up on a Tuesday because you were invited to bring banana bread, there will be coffee, and together, you're going to be long to a group that maybe is talking and praying and sharing burdens while they are showing you how to hold the needle. So watch this. Watch this. It begins by belonging to the group. And as you belong, you begin behaving because they show you how to hold it right and how to make the hook and how to pull it through. And by the end, you have certain beliefs. So it's almost like, almost like the, well, the order is flipped. We've been living for 500 years saying the pathway to belonging is that you believe first, you behave, and then you belong. But it's almost as if it's, it's flipped. Almost like a baby being born. When a baby is born, she does nothing to earn her belonging. She just is. And, and in her isness, in her, in her isness, she belongs to the family. But watch what happens. In her belonging... She begins to behave. She sees that when the sun goes down, we go to bed. When the sun comes up, we wake up. Sometimes we wake up in between those two events. <laughs> but then she also learns 
in the context of belonging already, she learns how to behave. When I have toys and now I have a little brother, I have to share my toys. And I say, yes, ma'am, and no, ma'am, and thank you, and please. And as she grows and becomes an adult and has a family of her own, now she has a certain set of beliefs about what a family ought to look like. Because it started with belonging, and then the experiences of her behaving allow her to stand in a place now and say with confidence, I believe these things about family because I experienced it back there. These are the things that I believe worked, and I want to repeat them. Those are the things that were painful and didn't work, and I don't want to repeat them. But now I have my set of beliefs because I've started belonging. I began behaving, and now I own this. When my boys were born, I sensed this a little bit too. Especially the first time I went through it when I was brand new to this thing. And, and when, when Nathan was born, it was a very difficult delivery, labor and deli delivery. It was very, very difficult. And I mean that. I, I went through a lot. It was <laughs> very bad, very bad. I just, I'm better now. I'm, be I'm much better now. Time heals, you know. But it was really quite, it was quite difficult. At one point, I even thought I was going to lose Laura. And it was simultaneously, simultaneously, it was the most terrifying and holy moment of my entire life. And when he was born, and the doctor delivered him and put him on her chest, the room that had been filled with chaos and noise and fear the room and the universe hushed. And I was in the presence of the divine. I was in the presence of our Lord showing me this mystery of how this thing comes. And in that moment, I, that kid belonged. Before he could ever do anything to deserve it, and despite anything that he would ever do to win or achieve or earn anything or or lose or fail at anything, it didn't matter in that moment to us. He belonged, period, end of subject, next topic. And when I think about that, I think about maybe that's why in the third chapter of the Gospel of John, when Nicodemus comes to Jesus, Nicodemus, this man who had all of his beliefs in order, he was a teacher, a well-respected person in the faith. He had all his behavior in order. He knew the law. He was righteous. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, the, the most important committee in the Jewish faith. And yet at night, he comes to Jesus with that kind of pedigree, that kind of belonging already, and he comes to Jesus and with all of that resume and says, you know, there, there's, there's something about what you're doing. There's something about the way you talk. And I, 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 don't, I don't get it. Tell me where you get, the, what, tell me more and how to, how to be a part of this thing that you're doing. And Jesus says to him, do you remember? He says to him, Nicodemus, it's like you kind of have to be born again. Because you, you, you have to be born all over again so that you recognize you already belong. And you already belong to a father who is willing to lay down his life for you. You got to start there. The belief won't matter. The behavior won't matter until you get this right. You start this journey 
already belonging. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So just a heads up. We've gone for a very long time in the other direction. Believe, behave, then you can belong. But I think, I think it's time for a reversal. In fact, Dinah Butler Bass says, maybe this is what we call in the 21st century the great reversal in which the church re-embraces its original design to belong, to be a community of God's belovedness, to belong first regardless of who you are, where you've been, or what you've done. And in your imperfection and in your unfinished story, you already belong and we work out that long and gradual transformation along the way. And why? Why the flip? Because this is the way of Jesus. This is the, Jesus never recruited anybody by saying, um, would you like to see a copy of our Constitution of Bylaws? Jesus never recruited anybody by saying, if you can agree with this list of philosophical beliefs and this set of doctrines, then you could be a part of this thing that we're going to... And if you clean up your life and everything is, is, is sparkly and shiny, then you could be... Jesus loved people into transformation. He started by going to people and saying, follow, just, just follow. Where are we going? Just follow. How long is it going to take to get there? Just follow to Simon and Andrew working on the boat, follow me. To James and John working on their nets, follow me. Be a part of something. In other words, belong with me. He even went to people who not only didn't believe the right way, but didn't behave the right way. He went to people who misbehaved. He went to Matthew, a tax collector, who, don't forget, was on the payroll of the Roman Empire, who was sent there to oppress the people. And he's taxing the people, and he comes to his tax table and says, you, Matthew, I want you, follow me. He goes to Zacchaeus, who's extorting people. He's cheating them out of their only life savings. He's a tax collector. And he goes to Zacchaeus and says, I want to have dinner with you at your home. Why? I've not done anything right. Because you belong in all of your imperfection and in your unfinished story you you belong and you cannot possibly get how good this news is he went to women and men with all kinds of backgrounds and said i want you to be a part of something and experience it with me and along the way there will be behaving and there will be believing but first just come just come I even remember the beginning of the Gospel of John, don't you, where two of the disciples, they pick up on what's going on with Jesus. They're intrigued by him, and they come to him. And you know what they ask him? They ask him a belief question. They come to him and say, Rabbi, where are you, where are you staying? They're interested. They're intrigued by his way. And they say, Rabbi, where are you staying? Which is code for where do you pitch a tent? Where are you camped out on the issues? What do you believe about these theologies and these politics and what, what do you believe about these philosophies rabbi where, where are you where are you on these things that's a belief question because they assumed that they had to believe first in order to belong but you know what jesus said his response was classic jesus he said come and see in other words come belong 
And along the way, we'll behave together in such a way that you'll see by the end what we believe. But come and start believing. Beloved, I don't know if maybe you're here today and you're not a believer. Maybe you're here because somebody drug you here. They said, hey, we got a free shirt. We got food trucks, so come. (laughs) My message to you is maybe something you never expected to hear a preacher say. But according to what we read about Jesus and the way he got this thing started, you don't have to believe in order to belong. You don't have to believe in order to belong. I mean, even the text that we read just a few moments ago about Peter, that great story, what we call the Petrine Confession, the confession of Peter. Jesus is hanging out one night with his disciples, and he says, who do people say that I am? And some say, well, some say you're John the Baptist. Others say you're another prophet from the dead. And Jesus said, but who do you say that I am? And it was Peter who said, I say that you are the Christ. You are are the Messiah, the Christ of God, the anointed of God. And Jesus said, yes, yes, yes. You have believed right. And most of the time we read that text and believe that it's all about what Peter believed that got this thing started. In fact, last week, Laura and I were at the the Vatican, and we were standing inside St. Peter's Basilica. And right there under this ornate, gorgeous canopy is the resting place of Peter. He's buried there. And we look up on the top of that gorgeous Duomo, the, the, the dome that goes around, and in letters, in letters seven feet high, are these words in Latin. You are Peter. You are rock. And on this rock I will build my church. To you I will give the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And for the longest time we have assumed that because of of, of Peter's belief that that's where the church started. That's how it all got in place. That's how we built a foundation for this thing we call the church. But let's not forget that the moment Peter said, I believe, You are the Christ. That didn't happen in a vacuum. It's not like Jesus asked him to follow at breakfast and by lunch Peter was confessing. That was after three years of belonging. Three years of behaving with him. Three years of making a journey in which they loved people and served people and proclaimed good news to people and healed people. That's after three years of Peter Peter watching Jesus say things about being merciful and then watching that Jesus backed up what he said with his actions. It's after three years of Peter watching that this guy is for real. They lived together, breathed together, ate together, served together, and at the end of all that belonging and behaving comes his confession, thou art the Christ. Yeah, you don't have to believe to belong you start belonging shoot for that matter you don't have to behave Uh, we recommend behaving (laughs) but you don't have to behave in order to belong is what i'm saying the behaving isn't essential the believing isn't essential don't hear me wrong but it begins with belonging i am amazed at how often people will wait on giving themselves to faith because they somehow have to get their life cleaned up. So I meet this guy in the public's parking lot, and he had been gone from church for a number of weeks, and I recognized it and said, hey, we've been missing you at church. True story, another state, but true story. I said, we've been missing you. Where you been? And he said, well, 
we're going through a lot of problems in our marriage and we didn't want to tell anybody and we just didn't feel right coming until we got some of that stuff sorted out. And I just felt a pain in the pit of my stomach because where have we taught ourselves? Where have we proclaimed that you got to be clean to get here? You start belonging and despite what goes wrong in the behaving, you stay and become redeemed along the way. So yeah, we have for the longest time lived in a believe, behave, belong paradigm. But it's time to recapture the church's original design. Belong, behave, and by God's good grace, believe. But you know, if that's a vision of what the church is intended to be, and I believe to the core of me that it is, then it requires a couple of things of a church. I mean, if we are going to be the beloved community of God in which it is safe to be here, if, if we're going to be a community in which it's safe to be imperfect and it's safe to be unfinished, then it requires two things of every church who desires to actually matter in the world. It requires two things. Number one, it requires patience. And number two, it requires trust. It requires patience with people in their imperfection and their unfinished business. And it requires trust in God. First, it requires patience. Beloved, can I just say something that is so obvious that it probably shouldn't even need to be said? If a person is not a Christian, they can't act Christian. We can't expect someone who is an unbeliever to act like they are believers. Which means it takes patience on our part if somebody's giving it a shot. You with me? In other words, in a church that is designed to be the beloved community of God's grace and love, it means we have to make space for doubt and skepticism so that those who aren't quite there yet feel it's safe to work out their salvation in fear and trembling. So also on this trip that we just got back from, we, we were able to visit um, the most extraordinary place, Athens, Greece. I know some of you have been there. You've you told me about your experience and it was an amazing experience because we visited the Parthenon on top of the Acropolis there in Athens. There's a picture of it right there. The, the Parthenon is this, the, the remains that, that are there are of this magnificent structure, a temple that was designed to, to house idols and altars of, of all the Greek gods that you read about in mythology. 20, 30, 60 feet high made of gold and silver and and bronze and, and pure marble everywhere. And it was a shining, shining, glistening edifice on top of the Acropolis there in Athens. 500 years before the birth of Christ. But just on top of the Acropolis, looking down, you see a mound, a big rock, almost a mini stone mountain called the Areopagus. That's a, a view from it from above. The Areopagus was the place where they held their supreme court. They tried people who were on trial, and also the educated of the city would come to debate. They would share new ideas. They would debate theologies and philosophies. And it was there on the Areopagus that in the, in the 17th chapter of Acts, Paul, on one of his missionary journeys, was killing some time 
waiting for his traveling partners, for Silas, Barnabas, to join him. And he's walking all through Athens and he's noticing all the idols made to, to gods from, from throughout antiquity. And he stands on the Areopagus, and here's a picture of us standing there, or I think there's another picture sitting right where Paul might have been, right on the Areopagus, looking up toward the, 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 the uh, Acropolis. And Laura and I stood there, and we read the 17th chapter of Acts together. And from the, the vantage point of Paul, what Paul saw, these are the words that we heard, that we read. Athenians, Paul says, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription, To an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything that is in it. He who is Lord of heaven and earth does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all mortals uh, life and breath and all things, for in him we live and move and have our being, e as even some of your own poets have said, for we too are his offspring. And I cannot tell you how stirring it was to stand right there and read that text and imagine the patience Paul must have had in that moment. In a city surrounded by what you and I would call unbelief, did you notice what he did not do? He did not shame them. He did not say, shame on you, lost. You're going to hell. You know what he said? I see how religious you are, and I noticed that you created some space in your own life for an idol that you may have missed. An unknown God that maybe you've not identified. You've created space in your own life for the possibility that there's one you need to hear about, and I'm here to tell you about that one. You hear how respectful and and how patient he is. Even at the end, he even quotes one of their songwriters, one of their poets, which is blasphemy. You don't quote from pagan poets. But patiently, he reaches out and says, if you've made space in your life for the possibility of a mystery that you've not yet met, I'm here to speak into that space and patiently show you that you are closer than you possibly could know. What if the church lived like that? What if we began to look in our neighbors' lives for the one little space that they may have opened up in their lives, that one space that they are willing to entertain the possibility that they've not considered something, and instead of rushing in and shaming them into belief, which can't happen, in the context of belonging, we patiently speak into it and love them to believe. If a church is to be the beloved community of God, it begins with being patient with people. But it also requires that we trust God. It, 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 it requires that you and I trust that God is up to something in the lives of people even when we can't see it or recognize it or, or control it. 
Sometimes we may give a little bit of a wide berth. We'll say, yes, oh, it's a place of belonging. You can come and belong. Even in your unfinished life, even in your imperfect life, we recognize that. We're going to meet you right where you are, so come on in. But you need to be cleaned up by noon. You got one week. We, I mean, we do. We, do. We, we meet you where you are, but we expect you to change. And we quote things like John 8. We say, yes, Jesus met the woman at the well and said, ah, where are your accusers? And she says, well, nowhere, Lord. Well, then neither do I accuse you. And then we're quick to say, but then he said to her, go and sin no more. So careful, don't be too happy with this grace business. Make sure we quickly move in to clean up their lives. But the truth is, we have to trust that that is a job that's already filled. You can't do that. You can't change a man's heart. You can't change a woman's heart. You can create a safe space for them to belong so that in that safety of belonging, God changes the heart. And only God can change the heart. So we must learn to trust. There is a writing known as Zorba the Greek by Nikos Kazantzakis. And he illustrates what I'm talking about here when it comes to loving people patiently, and trusting God fully. Listen to what he says. He says, One morning I discovered a cocoon in the bark of a tree. Just as the butterfly was making a hole in the case, preparing to come out, and I waited a while, but it was too long in appearing, and I was impatient. So I bent over it, and I breathed on it to warm it. I warmed it as quickly as I could, and the miracle began to happen before my eyes. Faster than life, the case opened. The butterfly started crawling out, and I shall never forget my horror when I saw how its wings were folded back and crumpled. The wretched butterfly tried with its whole body to unfold them. Bending over it, I tried to help it with my breath. In vain. It needed to be hatched out patiently, and the unfolding of the wings should be a gradual process in the sun. But now it was too late. My breath had forced the butterfly to appear all crumpled before its time. It struggled desperately, and a few seconds later, it died in the palm of my hand. That little body, I do believe, is the greatest weight on my conscience. For I realize today that it is a mortal sin to violate the great laws of nature. We should not hurry, we should not be impatient, but we should confidently obey the eternal rhythm. We should confidently obey the eternal rhythm. Beloved, can I tell you that the person who you love, the person who you are really hoping would come to faith, the person who you're, you're burdened for because you want them to believe, you want them to belong, can I tell you that if you confidently trust the eternal rhythm, God loves them more than you do. God is up to something in their lives that you can't even see, and your calling is to be present, and to be patient, and watch the salvation of God. What if the church looked like that? What if the world knew the church looked like that? What would it look like? There was a church in Seattle, Washington a few years ago 
who wanted desperately to reach out to the college community. So they met and they gathered. They went through the discernment process, not unlike what we went through here in the process of talking about worship. And they organized plans, and they really began to have an impact on the local university. And college students started to come, started to appear like they had never had before. And there was one college student. His name was William. And William was an eccentric guy, first year in college, two earrings, um, a, a tattoo that kind of crawled up the neck right here, you know, which I was thinking about getting, you know. I was, but, you know. Um, just kidding, don't email me. <laughs> he wore the tattoo. He had tattered jeans and, and the same T-shirt, always clean, but the same T-shirt, same jeans, and barefoot, never wore shoes, loved the feel of grass on his feet. They were hounding him for months, come to church, come to church, come to church. Eventually, he relented, and he came one day. He showed up a little bit late, and because he showed up late, the place was crowded. There was no place to sit in the back, because it must have been a Baptist church, you know, fills up the back first. So he walks down the aisle. Earrings, tattoo, tattered jeans, T-shirt, walks down the aisle and plops down on the floor in front of the pew. About this time, the whole church is watching, and they're, they're kind of wondering what's, what's going to happen. One of the deacons of the church, a long-term leader, a pillar of the, of the church, sees it happening. And he's wearing his suit, his coat, his tie. He's an older gentleman, so he begins to see what's happening, and he walks down the aisle toward him. About that time, some of the other deacons began to see him walking toward this guy. He's plopped down, barefoot on the floor, and they begin to posture themselves in case he needs some help. There might be some trouble. He gets down to the front. You know what he does? This deacon who knows his sisters and brothers. This deacon who knows what it means to belong. He comes down to the front and he turns and, and he looks at the church. And takes his jacket off. Slips his tie from his neck. Drapes it on the back of a nearby pew and plops down right next to William. Because church is where you belong first. All the behaving and all the believing, by God's good grace, will come in time. Let's pray. Most loving and welcoming God, we, we marvel that you would welcome any of us. We do. Because if we're really honest with ourselves, we are all imperfect and we are all unfinished and yet you still welcome us. And, and, and even when we fail and fall, you don't throw us away. You just, you just never have and you just won't. And for that, we are marveling and we are grateful. But today, somebody needs to feel the embrace of belonging stir within somebody to move today to take the risk of belonging and empower us as your church to love them into transformation in christ's name we pray amen <laughs>